Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 5, Episode 5, and today we are going to be talking about Catch Me If You Can from 2002. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by the inimitable con man, Matthew Watkins. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good, how about you? I am doing well. We are uh, in the midst of World Cup mania here, so th- mm-hmm. this season has been taking a while to record, so people will... Uh, we really dated ourselves for the first four episodes by not mentioning how Twitter was melting down when we uh, <laughs> talk about our Twitter handles at the end of every episode, so it'll be a little fun adventure for people, because we are... Uh, in our time, we just released the first episode of this season yesterday, and but it's been we've been recording it for a couple months been a bit slower going as stuff gets busy here everybody can listen to the episodes put together the clues follow the mystery and figure out you know when when we when we were recording each of the episodes uh and what was going on at the time so yeah i always kind of like going what like i have a good number of podcasts that i've listened to like every episode of but sometimes i'll get backlogged on them and i always enjoy listening to old stuff and like trying to put myself in the mind space they were in i'm like oh they don't even know that x is gonna happen yet so right yeah yeah it's people, fun. hopefully someone else in the world likes that and they can do that with uh and <laughs> do that with stream it it's possible the only people that like to do that are us that are making it but it's fine yeah that that would be unfortunate if that was the case but what are you gonna do yeah should we talk a little bit about our personal history with this movie why don't you go sure. first so I saw this movie on December 25th, 2002, uh, mm. the day that it came out. And so and I remember watching it because my family likes to go watch watch movies on Christmas Day, like when, when things go and release and whatnot. And so, or not when things release, but we just like to go see a movie on Christmas because, you know, it's a fun little tradition that we've had. So this one is the one that we went that year to go watch. And we'd seen some of the previews and things like that, so we're interested. There's This movie has a stellar cast, so that really drew us in. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, uh, we really wanted to watch them. But additionally, not only that, one of the big draws for us was that Jennifer Garner was in it, because we were watching Alias as it was releasing at the time. Oh, cool. And, yeah, and they had her in the trailers, and we are like, we gotta go watch it, because she's in the... And it's just a cameo, so... Oh, spoilers. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that, so that threw us off, but yeah. So we went to go see it on on Christmas Eve night, but I just went with not everybody wanted to go see it or go see this movie, so we kind of split up. So I saw this movie with my mom in the theater uh, on that night. So I remember it very vividly, like watching this movie with my mom. And then I didn't really watch it afterwards until about uh, like 10-ish years afterwards when I showed it to my spouse. I showed it to Lori. And we ended up watching it. And then it's been about 10 years since I watched it since then. So I've got, you know, every decade pop, popping this movie in and giving it a little watch. Boom. Yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of nice. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Did, did you, well, actually, let me ask. Did, when you and your mom saw it in theaters, did you like it? Was it something that 
Like, do you? What's your memory of how how that viewing was? Oh yeah, no, I liked it a lot when I watched it in the theater. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It's just a really well written and paced movie, and just uh, great cinematography, great performances. So it was a really easy one to want to love at the time period. But it's not one that like I've ever felt the need to rewatch like a dozen times or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I was pretty sure I had seen this movie multiple times, but now that I rewatched it for the podcast, I think I've only seen it once. And I'm not 100% sure when I watched it. I know I watched it with my parents, and I'm pretty sure it was pre-college, so that places it sometime in, like, and it was at home, so sometime between 2003 and 2004. Uh do you know what Netflix discs were a thing at that point, right? Yeah, so we I think we would have gotten it on a Netflix disc and and watched it. And then <laughs> I have I've maybe mentioned it on the show before, or certainly anyone who knows me knows like I have a lot more experience with this story. Uh in <laughs> 2009, they were developing a musical of Catch Me If You Can, the same team who had done uh, Hairspray, so Shaman and Whitman were did the music and lyrics, and Terrence McNally did the book, and it was doing its out-of-town previews at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, and I knew the music director there, and so he got me in as music intern during the out-of-town tryout in Seattle. So that was in 2009, and I thought I had rewatched the movie prior to working on that, but... Now I'm pretty sure I did not, but what I did do was I read the book, I read Frank Abagnale Jr.'s book, and I read all of the other books that Frank Abagnale Jr. had written, which I think there were three others at that point. That's a lot, yeah. I have definitely not read the book, so you're familiar, more familiar with the entire, like, over of this story than I am. Yeah, so... So I read all of those, and then <laughs> I watched the show... I don't know, probably 20 to 30 times in Seattle, not to mention I was in all of the rehearsals, so saw it in its entirety 20 to 30 times and then saw fragments of it in the hundreds of times. And then when it moved to Broadway in 2011, then I moved out to New York to also work on the show. So I was just a music intern. It wasn't a big role or anything. Uh, probably there's a lot of people on the production who wouldn't remember me, but uh, the people that I worked closely with, uh, <laughs> I'm still in contact with a lot of them and they definitely do remember me. And so yeah, I saw it another probably 30 to 40 times in New York and then another couple hundred times in rehearsals. So I know the story beats of the musical very well and all of the parts that line up with the musical I know very well. But one weird thing about a movie is that it doesn't have any of the songs in it. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> none of those songs that I know are in the movie. So yeah, that's my that's my history with this one. Definitely. Well, I guess I'll talk about it in the um, in the back half of the show, how, how watching it was this time. Sounds good. And then, yeah, the reason to pick this movie, I think it was, I was definitely intrigued to revisit this story. I was intrigued to revisit 
the the source material the yeah and i guess like the musical is more based on the movie than it is on the book there's some story points added to the movie that aren't in the book that are present in the musical so i think they tended to use the movie more as a jumping off point even though there's a lot of differences in the musical and it's also our first time repeating a director so we get to repeat viewing steven spielberg's work of course the previous one we had done from him was 1993 uh, for a draw <laughs> yeah that's the smart thing to do is say the year first definitely people's <laughs> brains work like mine too uh was jurassic park from 1993 and yeah so we were we were interested in seeing another another movie of his and i think if you're going to double up on a director for the first time steven spielberg is the one to do (laughs) yeah it's a it's you know um from the time periods that's like where we've grown up through movies he's definitely like the most like the most prestigious the most prolific director and so it's the one if you're gonna double when you're gonna hit a second director we're also hitting um another actor like main character actor uh, with tom hanks and we have not done that so many times either uh haven't repeated an actor you mean yeah we haven't repeated a, a like we've had cameo actors yeah, that have popped this... up in a crossover but this is like a main character actor uh tom hanks who is also in toy story as woody the 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 main character of of toy story in this one he's more the antagonist so it's really interesting to see those two ways that he approaches the role interesting choice to lead with the title of the movie rather than lead with 1995 yes 1995 a movie called <laughs> toy story yes <laughs> Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about choosing this movie? Um, I think that's it. It's, you know, it was very influential, this movie, at the time period that it was released. Uh, a lot more than what it did in the box office. And so it has a really big impact on kind of a lot of movies that come afterwards that I think maybe aren't so obvious. And it was a really big production at the time period. And it launched so many people's careers that, I, for me, it's a movie that's that's a lot more of a turning point in cinema than maybe what people remember it from watching it. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And then also it were, and I think we timed this up. We're either, I think we're exactly two decades after release date when we released this episode. It's within a week or so. I I can't remember if, if we got the first episode out in time or not, but always nice to do the the round number 20th anniversary of catch me if you can episode. round number anniversary yeah yep so uh yeah let's talk a little bit about 2002 then this is uh this falls in a kind of interesting place in the stream it timeline there was a six-year gap between movies that we had covered and this falls smack dab in the middle of those so we had the matrix in 1999 and then we had hitch in 2005 so we haven't really talked a ton about movies in the post 9-11 landscape and there we did talk a lot about changing technology and the technology that was upcoming in 1999 for the matrix but we haven't we haven't really covered anything that's 
right here in this sweet spot. So so close to after the turn of the century and close to after the largest tragedy in <laughs> our lives, in our lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, also 2002 was like a big deal for me because that was the year I became an adult. It's also the year I graduated from high school. I turned 18 on that mm. year. Uh, so, so I remember... Uh, looking through all the events, I was like, wow, this happened 20 years ago, and I still remember it all vividly. Like, so many of these events, I I was actively paying attention to in a way that I wasn't beforehand. So that was a very surreal experience for me looking over this film. Yeah, the m- movies in this time period really show... We, we don't have a large difference in age, you and me, but a movie like this really shows that difference. Because as I was scrolling through... The stuff, the the events, I was like, oh, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> I was too <laughs> yeah. busy worried about figuring out who I, like, how to be a human as a sophomore in high school. So Yes, and I had already figured out how to be a human. But, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you were, you were perfect at it. <laughs> I was perfect already by this point. No, yeah, it's it really had a sw- sweet spot for me, too, because um, my age was so close to the age of, of the character. And so, you know, and I was like, go at that point where I was like transitioning to going off on my own. Like I had moved out of my parents' house uh, like three months before this. uh, And I was going to college uh, a few hours away, but I was home for Christmas to watch this movie. So that's why I even got to see it with family. So I don't know. That's that's a weird experience, too, for me. Yeah. What do you want to talk about from 2002? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that, that were on here, uh, and a lot of things that you put on here were things I specifically remembered. But the the main thing that I felt really tied into the way I was thinking about this movie as it came out was that the dot-com bubble burst in October of, of 2002. So it was like falling all through 2001 and 2002. But mm-hmm. uh, October 2002 was when like the uh, the um all the economic indicators hitted their just rock bottom for so many of these different dot com companies and it was all over the news i mean that stuff was all over the place so i very very vividly remember this coming up and this being the kinds of discussions uh that people were involved in and a lot of the way that i was talking about it and people that i knew were talking about it we were was we were talking about the way this dot com kind of crashed and a lot of people that were involved essentially being like con artists um, in the way that so many things were built up essentially to take advantage of people. Uh, and so, so many things crashed. And so going into this film, I felt like a lot of the film was kind of looking at that kind of idea, the, the financial crimes and fraud that was that was happening at the time period. And this one was kind of looking back at how like new technology at the time period was used to commit fraud at a time when new technology was used to take advantage of people. And like, we were seeing the fallout from it. So I made that connection when I was in the, like in the theater watching it. Yeah. And kind of wild that here we are recording almost two decades to the date uh, (laughs) in the fallout of the FTX crash. And I mean, FTX, but also crypto in general, which yeah, it's very hard not to draw those 
parallels. It, that, uh, I wrote it in my notes as I was watching it, the FTX and crypto stuff. And, uh, you know, as Twitter has been collapsing as well, I feel like all that kind of goes, all this tech stuff kind of goes in the same category. All this tech stuff, yeah. Yeah. I had pulled a couple things that are both like, when I was scrolling through, one of the, they're, they're both kind of like, how did I not, how do I not remember this? Or how did I not understand <laughs> what was happening one of them was that the winter olympics were held in utah of 2000 in 2002 yes and i remember this very vividly like the i know like i knew that utah had hosted the winter olympics and i think i maybe like vaguely remembered that it had happened in my lifetime but i don't remember it feeling like a big deal like oh my gosh, we are the ones hosting the Olympics. The same way I feel like I cannot believe that the World Cup is going to be here in our country in four years. Like, the, I didn't have any of those feelings in 2002. It was just like, oh, this is what happens, you know? <laughs> That's so weird <laughs> to me because, like, it sometimes was such you get a the big Olympics. deal. It was such a big deal for me when it happened because... Like, I have a lot of family that's in Utah over in Salt Lake. And so, right, yeah. like, the whole city was, like, so much of the city was rebuilt. They redid all the freeways. They built so much of, so much infrastructure that went into the city. And, um, you know, the, Mitt Romney was involved with that committee and kind of really got it all going together. And that basically is what allowed him to launch a political career afterwards. Like he had a financial, uh, oh, I didn't you know, know things that. that he did, but the, the Jeez. Salt Lake uh, Olympic committee was the thing that basically launched his ability to, you know, be a political career. And I remember all that vividly. I remember when Mitt Romney was chosen to be a, like in charge <laughs> of the, I, these are things that I remember vividly. It was a big deal. And it was like, you know, thoughts and controversies and people weren't sure if he would be able to handle it, all of those kinds of things. So, that was a very big event that I remember very vividly from the time period. Yeah, 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 makes sense. And then the other one I had pulled in this vein was on November 25th of this year of 2002, George W. Bush signed the Homeland Security Act, which did make sense to me when I read that. But what completely shocked me, and maybe you just have to be exactly the age I was for this to be shocking, is that founded the Department of Homeland Security. I didn't realize that that was a department that just didn't exist before 2003. I kind of assumed it had always existed, but it came directly out of September 11th. And that's just my naivete and youth from, from the time, I think. I assume that's like pretty commonly known by people just a little bit older than me. I don't know. I think that that's the thing that I think I think it depends on how much interaction you have with DHS. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. Like, yeah. If if it's a thing that's just kind of like off, not on your radar too much, I, a lot of times it surprises people. Like it, when I told my parents that, like that it only existed since 2002, that kind of blew their minds. They're like, I could have sworn it did because there were yeah. like DHS was taking a bunch of different departments and putting them under the same umbrella. There's a lot of things that were kind of disparate things that were. Uh, parts that were sort of like what DHS became, but not the kind of Frankenstein monster that it became afterwards. It was, yeah, it was focusing various, various different agencies and departments or budgets. 
Yes, and not only that, but centralizing the power under like the the executive mm-hmm. with a different kind of focus than it was before. So right. so much more. Um, you know, breaches of civil liberty liberty and things like that. And at the time period, like, um, I remember hearing this going on. Uh, I remember being worried about what was going to go on with it. I did not understand the extent of what it would reach. And I think that most people, pro- like, there were people who did. Uh, but most people around my age didn't really understand the extent that it would affect people's lives and the extent of, like, the, you know, um, the privacy uh, breaches yeah the privacy breaches and the uh ab- abuses of power that would happen because of it yeah you had one other thing right that you wanted to talk about yeah just uh, it, this was a, i mean it wasn't a small thing for the people involved but it's just i don't know in the long course of history it's not like you know a huge momentous occasion but uh united airlines declared bankruptcy on december 8th just like two weeks before this movie came out um <laughs> so i just found that Free kind of marketing, ironic with huh? the, yeah yeah so <laughs> uh just kind of ironic the way with the airlines you know what's funny is that there was a lot of airlines that declared bankruptcy in 2001 and 2002 because of september 11th right, and all those yeah. kinds of things so there was a lot at the time period and then Once again, in 2019-2020, we've had another big spike of airline bankruptcies. So when you look at the timeline of airline bankruptcies, you see a big spike these 20 years apart. So, I don't know. That's another kind of connection with what's going on at the time period. And I definitely remember us talking about how quaint it... Like, my parents and I, when we watched this, talking about how quaint it was to have the lack of airline security that we now take for granted in a a post 9-11 world yeah the way that he's able to you know uh just walk mm-hmm. onto those airplanes but okay yeah. but at the time period like we were just barely transitioning through that thing not all of those like security measures were in place at the time period when this came out so so watching it and like the idea of the airport and like this kind of attention that it was as as a cultural battleground like at the time that i watched it when this movie came out was very fresh in mind that makes sense i mean we were yeah we were at least 12 to 18 months removed from you i would guess when when we watched it so that that makes sense that everything would have it was still in been, the process yeah. along yeah so i don't know wild it's it's wild to think of and then the other thing that I had pulled, are, are you familiar with the book, The Art of Deception? I am not. Yeah. So this is a book by Kevin Mitnick, who is, it's essentially the same story. Kevin Mitnick is one of the most infamous computer hackers or hackers of all time. And then eventually like got recruited or it was really a story of using the thief to catch the thief. And now he works in cybersecurity and had so, but in 2002, he released a book called the art of deception that was explaining how he did all of the hacking he did of which some of it was technical, but a lot was what he called social engineering, essentially, (laughs) you know, the, the same thing that, Frank Frank Abagnale in the movie does you show people what they want to see and 
this book was a big deal, but um, one of my best friends in high school, Cahill, like he, this book was on his radar and he got it as soon as it came out and he read it and he gave it to me. And so the, this was, this idea was just something that was in the zeitgeist at the time. Had you and, read that book before you saw the movie? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the stats here. How, what was our budget and box office? Yeah, so this movie had a budget of $52 million, which was quite a bit at that time period. It was, they they spent a lot of money to put this thing together, and they filmed it in so many different locations with so many, like, extensive sets, extensive sets and so many, um, uh, like, big-name actors and costumes and all those kinds of things. It was a huge mm-hmm. production at the time period. There were other bigger films that came out around that time period, bigger budgets, you know, things like the Matrix movies were coming out around that time period, right? And the... They were the next year, I think, yeah. Right. Well, so I was, I do, so this was the 11th highest box office of movies that were released in 2002. So right. right off of the top 10. I don't know if you've looked at it, but if you haven't, I was curious how many of those movies you would be able to come up with because there are a lot of big names on this list i'm not sure but i'm uh, there's the lord of the rings that also came out um, yep so that's number one yeah yep. so um i feel like spider-man is on there isn't yep, Spider-Man that's 2002 num- yep so yep. that's number three and uh, is the princess and the frog on that year or is that 2003 uh no princess and the frog is much later because that's oh, that uh, when i was in college Oh, there's a Disney movie that came out that year, um, but it was I couldn't remember like it what is, time period. It's it was Lilo at. and Stitch, and so That's it's all the, the way one. down at 17th. Lilo and Stitch came out that year. Um, that makes sense that it's lower because uh, Disney was going through kind of its fallow period at that time, and so uh, Princess and yep. the Frog was where they really started hitting bigger again. I'm not sure which other ones would be on there. I feel like. Uh, what was so I there's two the like major franchise ones that you're missing, both two and four. Was there a Star Wars film that came out that year? Um, there was, yeah. Attack of the Clones, or is that yep. Revenge of the Sith? No, okay. Attack, Attack of the, of the Clones. Clones. Yeah, so and, that's number four. Um, yeah, I'm not sure which else was there. Uh, was there a James Bond movie that came out that year? I think there was. There was, but that's yeah. number six. So that's Die Another Day another day yeah so i'm not sure what other movies i think that's as many as i can guess off the top of my head the other one you definitely could get it shares a composer with this movie Um, or at least the first movie in the series shares a composer with this movie gasp i don't know you're 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 it is the best-selling uh kids fan or fantasy series of all oh yes harry potter yeah yeah releases that year that makes sense Yep. Um, so that's Harry Potter 2 and the Chamber, yeah. right? Chamber of Secrets is number two? Yes, Chamber of Secrets yeah. number two. So th- those were the ones that I figured you would get. Uh, the rest of the ones on this list, we have Men in Black 2 at number five, which I sense. didn't think you were going to get. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't was... have guessed it, but that, that makes sense. I watched it in theater, so I probably should have known that one. 
There is an M. Night Shyamalan movie at number seven, which is pretty surprising to me. Uh, but it's not its not The Sixth Sense, right? It's, it is not. We're later um, than that. Is it The Village or is it... Um, uh, later than that, too, I think. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. So it's, it's Signs. A, signs. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And then the this is kind of bananas, but there is a an animated movie that is not Disney, and it's Ice Age. Oh, I did see that Ice Age came out that year. Um, yeah. As I was looking through all the stuff, which is a pretty big deal because, um, as I said, this was like a fallow period for Disney, and like Pixar yeah. was making movies, but I don't think Pixar had been bought like bought outright by Disney at the time period. So Pixar was kind of still its own thing though associated with disney still it, that was a weird time and so you had is dreamworks ice age i believe that's accurate yeah i believe uh, so and so you had dreamworks uh with ice age that was like the first really big contender and it was one of the first times that like a non-disney or put pixar studio was putting out like the biggest animated movie of the year so people were thought that Disney was dead. Like th- this is was in the newspapers at the time period. They're like Disney's gone. It's never going to have the cultural impact that it's ever going to have again. Uh, it's you know it's it's dropping off. People are going to be forgetting about it. And you know <laughs> um, that sure turned out now. to be accurate, right? So yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It was it was an interesting time. Uh, yep. And then number nine is my big fat Greek wedding. Uh huh. That makes sense. Yeah. And then number ten is another Spielberg movie, actually. Oh, let's see. Is it AI? AI came out. It's a little later than AI, I think. Okay, AI. But yes, is it's great. that exact period. AI might have been the year before, so um, I'm not sure which. Well, no, hold on. Minority Report. Yeah, Minority Report. Nice. Yeah. Got look at that. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. I don't really think of 2002 for being like a particularly good year for movies. And I guess it's not necessarily like not all of those movies are particularly good. Yes, but, but also an... part of that is because you didn't like Spider-Man because that movie was a big deal. When uh, yes, I am lower on Spider-Man than yeah. than a lot of people. But and I don't like the Harry Potter movies. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, but definitely an interesting year for movies. For sure. Oh, yeah. A lot of interesting stuff. Man, just having Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter (laughs) and superhero movies reinventing themselves all at the same time is just, like, so bananas to think about. We just got to grow up then, you know? The the Lord of the Rings movie actually ties into this because uh, Lord of the Rings came out, what, a week before this movie came out? Um, I think it might have been the same day. Was it the same day? Because I saw I the Lord of the Rings that, yeah. first. So, so, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 so I might have not seen this oh, the day released. I might have seen it the day afterwards. No, you're right. It was the week before, December 18th. The week before. The okay, that makes released, sense. Yeah. yeah, because I thought I remembered watching the Lord of the Rings all by myself because I wasn't home yet from, from break. And I went by myself and watched it. And then when we went to go see this movie, uh, nobody else had seen the Lord of the Rings in my family. So it's like, you guys couldn't go watch it. But my mom like hadn't seen the first one. So I was like, Mom, I will go with you to watch Catch Me If You Can. My mom and my grandma. Um, and so, so I went with them to go see this movie while everybody else went to see the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, cool. Yeah. 
so I think I cut you off before you said what this movie actually made in the box office. It made $352 million, which is a lot of money. But at the, at, at, when it came out, it was seen as a, not a flop, but it was seen as it was expected to do better. And it was right up against the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and the Lord of the Rings was such a box office smash that it kind of. You know, people thought it was going to be counter-programming and all that stuff. So, it, but it was expected to make more money. With that said, it did really, really well and, you know, had some pretty good legs. And so made money pretty far into the next year. Um, but I mean, the thing is, like, you release a Spielberg movie the week before the year ends. And it has Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks in it. And, like, the clear message is this is an Oscar contender. This is... Right going to be nominated for best picture mm-hmm. and it wasn't it only received two academy award nominations and so like by any accounts of expectations that just has to be viewed as disappointment from the studio i would imagine uh yeah generally it viewed as kind of a disappointment at the time period especially because you know that's a pretty high budget for the time period and so it was being yeah. outperformed by you know, like Spider-Man and Lord of the Rings had higher budgets, but there were a lot of movies that were on that list, like My back, my Big Fat Greek Wedding specifically in the discourse, which was made for, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was around $10 million. Probably $3, um, yeah. <laughs> it was made for significantly less uh, and made a bit more money. And so that was the discourse at the time when this was coming out and like when pe- as people were talking about movies. So it was kind of seen as a disappointment. But it's weird because, again, it was a movie that had a lot of legs. So it actually financially did just fine, especially compared to movies at the time period. It's just that it it didn't do it in the first like three or four weeks as much as you might have expected. So and right around Oscar time, as you said, it was the discourse was kind of low on this film. So and then the way that kind of developed a lot of the way that people were making kind of period pieces and things like that afterwards was a bit of a change. So it was very influential in those ways. But at the time period, it was definitely looked at as kind of an awkward movie for Steven Spielberg and kind of a decline in his career. Yeah. I mean, it did like, it did do well with reviews. I think it was 94% Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. So it's not like it was panned, but no, it's a good yeah, film. It, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. People just didn't watch it as much as they were expecting. So yeah. it's weird, though, how movies do this where people set the expectations. And if you don't meet those expectations, it's seen as a failure, even though like it does perfectly fine. And this is a movie that I felt really hit that like people expected it to just do like gangbusters because you'd had um, not too long before you had like Saving Private Ryan that made so much money and you had Schindler's List and all of these other Spielberg films that just made so much money. But before this, you had AI and Minority Report and this film that all kind of were financial seen not quite as failures, but almost. And so the discourse around uh, Steven Spielberg at the time period was definitely seeing his career as essentially being done. Of note, Steven Spielberg will be releasing another film, you know, right now, like as we're speaking, yeah. which is The Fable Moons that is coming out, and it's probably going to do uh, spectacularly well in the box office. So, you know, I don't know. And uh, is worth mentioning. At least on the film Twitter people that I follow on Twitter, like, is heavily expected to be well it's the current front runner for best picture you know there's a ton of time between now and the oscars so yeah. take that with whatever you know 
no one saw Coda. Was Coda last year? Yes. Yes. Yeah. No one's. No one was talking about Coda at this time. Except last for you. Year. You were talking about Coda at this time last year. No, I was not. I didn't see it until Christmas. Oh, until, really? I thought. Yeah. You saw so. It. So yeah, I was still a month away from seeing it. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. But Fair enough. Even even when I did, I still didn't. I was just hoping it would get nominated. You know, I didn't think there was a shot it would win Best Picture. Uh, uh, makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> Coda. I should mention the two nominate uh, the two nominations that this film got. So Christopher Walken was nominated for supporting actor, and then John Williams was nominated for score. Neither neither of them won. I I do wonder whether or not this would have made it in in like an expanded best picture category. I just don't I don't remember enough of the discourse at the time. I'm I'm guessing probably like 50-50 whether it would have made it in or not. That's probably but. accurate. Yeah. This score by John Williams is great, though. Like, we've talked about John Williams a bit. And so, once again, a John Williams crossover on this one. Once uh, again, a John Williams crossover. And what's... I feel like John Williams... Like, you think about his big scores. You think about, like... I guess... Um, I guess Harry Potter's may be a little different. But you think about, like, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Jurassic Park. And they're all very triumphant scores like they're all they all Mm, kind of fit into this same category of score heroic yeah heroic yeah and this movie does not this movie really lets him show some of his different and i think he has a little bit more jazzy roots or at least like on his birthday last year i watched his first movie with johnny o which was really a pretty reprehensible movie um, but the score was really jazzy and really good and fun. Uh, so I, I think this is kind of like a wheelhouse that he maybe would have lived in a little more if his career had gone a different way or if he had just gotten hooked up with someone who wasn't Steven Spielberg. And Yeah, I, John Williams he, was a jazz musician before becoming a movie. Oh, he was. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so exactly. yeah, you get to really see a different color from him in this movie, and it's it's nice. So, you know what's weird about this movie is that there was, um, they did something a little bit different with the score, actually. Uh, and one of the things that they did is there were some scenes where um, Steven Spielberg had John Williams write the score before shooting the scene. Um, oh. Yeah, so they, they put it together and then they directed the scene to hit the beats of the score that John Williams had written. Can't remember which scene was it, but I don't know. Like that's it's super cool, and that's not a normal thing to happen. No, that basically never happens. That's cool. Yeah, and I mean the only reason why it happens here is because of the relationship that uh, that John Williams and Steven Spielberg has on the behind the scenes stuff for this film. He says, "Without John Williams, I wouldn't have a career." <laughs> that's his line. Uh, yeah, it's because John Williams probably is... not true, but. It wouldn't be the same career, yeah. Yeah, for sure, because his relationship with John Williams and the way that John Williams elevates films so much with the scores that he includes, and, you know, that relationship that Steven Spielberg has with John Williams over such a long period of time. And this is, I, I don't even know what number movie this was for the, with them together. I think it was it's, 20. I think I saw it was number 20. So, so yeah, uh, yeah that's so many. Um, it's just incredible i don't know this score was really really good for this film i'm not surprised it didn't win because like you know how many times does john williams need to win 
Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, you had the Lord of the Rings score, which is just ugh, so good and holds up so well even now. Is that so, what won this year? I'm not sure. How but, sure uh, won? but, you know, it's I wouldn't be surprised. I, I didn't go look it up or anything, but that's what I would guess uh, from from the Oscars that year. It was Frida. The, uh, Elliot Goldenthal won the best original score this year. And it was actually a pretty interesting year because you had The Hours, which was scored by Philip Glass. And then... Uh, oh, The Hours mm-hmm. has such a good score. Yeah, I love and that And Road to Perdition, so. which is a score I'm also really fond of by Thomas Newman. And then Far From wow, Heaven, yeah. which I have That's not a... seen by Elmer Bernstein. I haven't seen that one either. So, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I I look back as well, and the Lord of the Rings did win the, for best score mm-hmm. the year before. So I, I do think there is this this kind of academy bias towards, you know, things that have won multiple years in a, in a row. A lot of times they kind of want to uh, move on from that. There's a lot of years that John Williams just should have won best score when they gave it to somebody else just because he'd won, like, the two years previously. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that's involved a little bit. I haven't listened closely to the Frida score. That's an extremely competitive yeah. year, though. Uh, more, Even more competitive than most years. So I don't want to knock the Frida score. I'm sure that it's wonderful and beautiful and is a very deserving winner. But it, yeah, any one of those scores, I could totally see winning in yeah. another year. Let's talk a little bit about our actors here. I mean, we've talked about steven spielberg for jurassic park i don't want people to think like we're ignoring him but i don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time talking about steven spielberg's career and honestly we will probably have another opportunity to talk about him (laughs) in the in the life of stream it uh yeah i wouldn't be surprised if we hit a third uh, Steven Spielberg movie before we hit someone else's. That's second. possible. But, you know, yeah. Who knows? So let's That's talk a little bit about the the actors that we have here. Who who do you want to start off with? Uh, so, the, I you know the actor that we need to talk about is mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio, because you know this movie was really made as a as a vehicle for him. He was involved in developing this, and so he was attached from the very beginning before Spielberg Spielberg was attached. And he's the one that basically talked Spielberg into doing the film and essentially sold him on it. And so the role was always for Leonardo DiCaprio to be playing the part of Frank Abagnale Jr. And this was for... So I had seen a lot of Leonardo DiCaprio's career before this point. And he'd done, uh, you know, he'd done the role on Growing Pains that he kind of got established on. And then he did Romeo and Juliet and he did Titanic which is where his he really broke out as a major film star. And then he was trying to develop this like this career to be seen more as a serious performer, like a serious adult performer, because the discourse around Leonardo DiCaprio at the time period was so centered around how young he was um, and how young he looked and how like people were not taking him seriously as like an actual dramatic performer they're just like oh yeah that guy that was in that romantic guy that was in titanic like he was seen just as yeah we kind of Uh, it's kind of really similar to what we talked about with um with garrett with the lighthouse with robert pattinson where they got pigeonholed into this pretty boy role for robert pattinson for twilight and uh, leonardo dicaprio for titanic and it's 
it's weird to think about mm-hmm. now because now we think of Leonardo DiCaprio as like one of the most accomplished <laughs> adult actors working right now. But yeah, if I were to pick any actor that has like the most cachet with with like Gen Z particularly, it would be Leonardo DiCaprio. He is the the one like I teach uh, people in Gen Z, so I I interacted with them constantly, and this is the actor that if I were to ask them like who's the most the actor that you would go to see a movie just because they're in it, he's the one that they would answer. And uh, this is this one is really the turning point for me for his career, and a big part of it is that the film itself is kind of a commentary on what he was going through as being seen as young. And, like, immature when he really Yeah, wasn't. you really get to see, like, the difference between him at the beginning of this movie and him at the end of this movie is pretty stark. And it kicks off, like, it kicks off this run of his where he had Catch Me If You Can in 02 and then Gangs of New York in the same year and then The Aviator in 2004, The Departed in 2006, Revolutionary Road in 2008, Shutter Island and Inception in 2010. And then by the time you hit there, I guess by the time, like, The Departed was really like when it was like, oh, I guess he's arrived at this place now. <laughs> For sure, yeah. He was he was yeah. an adult in, yeah. the, in The Departed. It was like, yeah. we, we don't, we're no longer, I, I think my memory is after we came out of The Departed, the conversations shifted from, being like, well, can he do this? And he wasn't, like, having to prove himself anymore. I agree, yeah. Uh, I do think this film is an important p- stage in that journey, and I think oh, that's yeah, why he it. Oh, yeah, it launches all of it. Is... Yeah, I, I think I think Leonardo DiCaprio is an actor who has very, like, carefully planned each step of his career and has had to make, like, really difficult choices that maybe a lot of people wouldn't be wouldn't have made in the same positions that he was in in order to build the career that he has and i think that each of them was essential in getting to that point mm-hmm. so yeah and he's great in this movie like he, he is it his acting chops are just really really good and he plays one of the things that's great for him in this film as a vehicle to showcase his acting talent is that he performs in yeah. so many different ways Right, he's someone playing someone who is uh, is doing different roles. Right, playing someone who is acting, and so you get to see a very dynamic range of his ability to perform. Yeah, he's he's great here. So, yeah, that's the main thing person that I wanted to talk to. But yeah, this is this is a star-studded cast. It's got everybody in this movie. You've got Amy Adams shows up in this, and basically like her first role. You've got Jennifer Garner in this, which is her transition over to film. You've got Christopher Walken, who just you know shows up and just completely chews up the scenery and dominates every single scene he's in. You got Tom Hanks, you know, randomly playing the villain. I not the villain, the antagonist in this film. And it's funny with Tom Hanks because they had got went over to get him, and he like called up Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's like, you know, I would really like to do this film, but I don't. Are you okay with that? Because I I don't want it to feel like I'm trying to overshadow you or like trying to take over, steal your thunder or anything like that. Oh, so they had funny. this conversation beforehand, and and yeah, and Leo was like, no, you're the person I wanted to be in the film with. Like that's you're the dream casting. So um, I don't know. It was yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty cool that you get to see both Amy Adams 
and Jennifer Garner at like the beginning of their careers in this movie. Um, so it, Alias started in 2001. I'm, I, they must have been in the middle of season two at this point, at least airing season two. And I guess she got cast in this movie because Spielberg had seen her in Alias and was so taken with her and so wanted to cast her in this. And Amy Adams, we're still like five years or six years away from the, I think five years, right? Enchanted is two, wait, no, Enchanted must be later. It must be like 2009. So, which is all of a sudden Amy Adams is just like everywhere. And, you know, now, now Amy Adams is Amy Adams, but did I, Jennifer Garner, I recognized in this movie, Amy Adams, I, if I hadn't known it was her, I would not have been able to tell that it was her. She didn't seem. <laughs> but, well, the braces. Really I mean, that definitely hurts. Um, yes. But uh, I feel like Amy Adams just has a quality about her that didn't seem like it was present yet in this movie. And maybe that was just good acting for her yeah. being Brenda or maybe she just like hadn't found it yet. You know, I don't know. I, I totally get what you're saying. It's a, I agree. And yeah, though I remembered seeing her and when I went to see Enchanted, we were like, oh, it's that girl that was in, in Catch Me If You Can. Though she was in a couple of other things in between as well. Um, there is another TV star actress that was in this film for a cameo appearance um, that you probably didn't recognize because her career didn't blow up quite as much. But she's an actress that Uh-oh. I think you know. Yeah, so um, it is Amy Acker is in this. <gasps> really? Movie. Oh, yes. I love and she Amy plays Acker. one of the one of the flight attendants. Yeah, she's one of the flight attendants that ends up getting cast in it. Um, so for those that don't know Amy Acker, Amy Acker was she did a little bit of TV work, but specifically she's working on the TV show Angel yeah. at the time period, and she's done. She's never had like the big film arrival that those other two. Uh, actresses had but you know she's been on a lot of different things a lot of Joss Whedon things specifically but people might know her as the cellist from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. among many mm-hmm. other things that she's done and uh, what was the other Joss Whedon show Dollhouse yes she was, and was in, she in person well. of interest as well yeah she was in person of interest I believe so if you want to see her in a leading role she was um one of the leads in what's that one the shakespeare one that much ado about nothing much ado about nothing oh man she is just excellent (laughs) i adore her she's an excellent yeah she is excellent she's you know it's only a cameo role she's uh, when he's interviewing all those stewardesses Mm, she's one of them no i definitely did not recognize her Yeah, I didn't think you would, but I, I knew that it was a good yeah. one to bring up to you. Did you have anyone else you want to talk about, or should we move on? Uh, the only other person that I wanted to talk about was the, you know, one of the unsung heroes in the film business, um, Je- Janine Oppowall, who did the production design mm. for this film. And she is kind of, this was more towards the beginning of her career, but she is a legendary costume designer and they're not costume designer, production designer. And she does incredible work on this one, uh, on this film. She's also involved a little bit with the costumes, working very closely with Mary Zofris, who had come to this film from working with the Coen brothers oh, previously. Cool. 
and all those period pieces. So they, this film was approaching kind of period pieces in a little bit different way because of the extensive amount of work that they went into creating the the world that and the production design that was built for the period piece. So period pieces always had tried to do this, but this one just takes it to another level. And you see kind of from 2002 going forward, a lot of this aesthetic going into the way that period pieces are made. And they went to all kinds of different locations and built all kinds of different sets for them to perform on. And it, it's just the production design was so good that they did from this film and they use so many reference photos to bring into it. And in my opinion, the best part of this film is the production mm-hmm. design. And so uh, I wanted to recognize uh, Janine Oppowall for, for the work that yeah. she did on that. Thanks Janine. Uh, for sure. Yeah. So that's it. That's all the major people that I wanted to talk about uh, in this, in this, uh, in this film. Uh, let's talk about any advice or insight we might have for first-time viewers here. I know we're going to put a little bit of a warning on one, but do, I didn't have anything other than that. Do you? Um, let me think. You know, this is this film is just like a, a nice, fun, like, picaresque film. Uh, you know, it's you're, you're dealing with people that are... That are trying to defraud people but you really root for them and it's fun like it's just a fun film to yeah watch. doesn't uh it never comes up in conversations for people talking about their favorite christmas movies but i think it kind of should so i don't know if you're looking for a different christmas movie i think this one can fit the bill yeah i, I it's a it it's very similar to uh, something like Die Hard in the way that the Christmas is an essential part of the background of this film. And it's not just like in an offhand way. The 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 setting of Christmas is really important, but the like the holiday and the ethos of like Christmas is not really the the central idea. Like it's not a Christmas movie, but it definitely Christmas is the major part of the setting for a lot of Yeah, it doesn't rely on Christmas for any sort of like emotional involvement with the propulsion of the plot, which uh, if you're a Jew Scrooge like me, <laughs> tends to be the biggest stumbling block for Christmas movies. So yeah, you don't, you don't have to worry about, you know, getting preached at about the spirit yeah. of Christmas in this film. Um, okay. So I'm going to give a little bit of time here for some people to jump off. Normally we have a little music here, um, but I, I am going to talk a little bit about uh, historical context for this movie and his, like the historical background of it, which for some people I think will enhance the movie. For some people, it's something that you're going to want to know going in. And for some people, it might ruin a little bit of the magic knowing what is true and what is not. So if you're one of those people who, for whom the magic is going to be ruined, then uh, I'll give you just a little break here to, you know, stop washing the dishes or whatever. Get to your get to your phone so you can pause it. So, do 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 do. Pew! I actually don't remember what the horn thing that I had Andrew record sounds like. I think it sounds like that. Close enough. Yeah, sounds great. 
Um, do you want to start? Should I start? So, yeah, I'll start. Um, one of the things... So this film is based on the life of Frank Abagnale Jr., but it's really based on the book that he wrote, detailing all of his, you know, incredible exploits and cons and all of these things. Unfortunately, one of the things that has been um, discovered over the past 20 years, so this has been a gradual kind of uh, discovery. It's really within the last, like, two years. Like, there was a book that came out uh, middle of the pandemic detailing all of this yes biggest stuff in the last two years but there's been there's been like a trickle of stuff uh throughout basically the last 20 years of different um like interviews with him and different people questioning him on the authenticity of account his account and essentially what we've what we found at by this point is that you know he basically made it all up the the amount of what's true in this story is it's not that he didn't do anything that's here or that he wasn't like a con man that was doing this kind of thing, but not to the degree in basically any of the stories that he claimed. So you can go on and explain more about that, but that's basically. Yeah. I th- I so about. there's a couple like really big bummers here. I don't know. Maybe I should talk about them in, in spoiler section, but yeah, because some of them are specific to what, happens in the movie but yes the 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 vast majority of what was detailed in this book and then further detailed in the movie is uh just fabrication like he got famous like the 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 biggest con he ever pulled on anyone was writing the book and making people think that a lot of it was true and then basically getting to have this life as if he had done a bunch of things which he hadn't really done uh which you know we've seen well and the biggest part of that con of being able being able to pull off that life probably is the movie because they were working on getting this movie together and the way that that enhanced his reputation was tremendous at the time period it also like uh, starts off this this huge period of like fame for him where he was doing like big speaking tours and all of these things in the like five years to ten years after the film and you know based in almost entirely on yeah the, i mean the movie definitely acts as a big springboard but the turning point that happens is the scene that's shown at the beginning of the film where he goes on a game show and then people find out who he is like that is the beginning of if that hadn't happened none of it would have would have been able to happen people just assumed that the game show had vetted it correctly and so did spielberg i haven't like heard him talk about this since any of this has come out so i i assume yeah i don't i don't know how he feels about it I don't know if he feels duped or... I don't know. I know that they did some amount of work, like, trying to trying to get the, the like, historical details right about this and trying to get people involved to, like, find... Besides Frank Abagnale. So it's not like they were completely negligent in their effort to try to, you know, find out the truth of the story. It was harder to do that to be fair, at the time period. It's not like you have the same kind of extensive amount of internet documentation that people have nowadays. So some it was it was difficult to 
verify all the facts of the story. And so I can't imagine trying to get all the fact checking done. And then the other problem with it is how how truthful you're expecting people involved with this to be because he, like one of the reasons why he was able to kind of coast on the on uh, this film for so long with people questioning him is that he would say, you know, why are people going to admit to being fooled in this way? It's a very embarrassing thing. And uh, most of the people that that he claims to have been conning would have been very powerful and very rich people involved with major corporations. And so people, you know, there's a lot of reason to suspect that people wouldn't want to admit to being conned yeah. by them. Turns out, though, that most of those things just didn't happen. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, and it's not that he didn't work as a con man. He did. He just, you know, uh, there's, you know, the idea of stealing millions and millions of dollars probably is more in the realm of like, you know, thousands of dollars. Not quite around the borderline of somewhere in ten thousands of dollars. Like right in the edge of uh, of five digits. So I don't know. Like it's not. He does do a little bit of check forgery. This claim that he has that he works with the FBI afterwards basically doesn't happen, though he does a little, a few talks at the FBI, things like that. I don't. It's it's. There's a lot of fabrication yeah. in the story. Which yeah, I, well, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the specifics in the in the back half. Yeah, I did want to mention just this idea. Uh, I see sometimes in the discourse about uh, biographical pictures is this idea that the film wasn't accurate to whatever story, whatever you know, person's life that they're trying to tell. And I, and so this idea of the ethics of how accurate a biographical picture needs to be. And in my opinion, that's just not the most important question that you need to be asking. Like making a, a good film is more important than trying to be exactly accurate to the way that certain per people perceive stories to have been. I think that there's value in looking at the story that Fra Frank Abagnale Jr. told about his life and creating a story based around the story that he essentially told. That doesn't mean that if you knew that these things were like blatantly false, you probably wouldn't make a movie about it. But I don't think it's harmful to have a film that, that doesn't get all of the historical details precise. Yeah, I I agree. I, uh, I agree with that general premise. I think there's probably some stuff in this one specifically that are a little more harmful just because they're lionizing someone who, because yeah. Because it's so blatant. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So. I, I would generally agree with that. But uh, but uh, for me, the onus of like the ethics of that falls on Frank Abagnale Jr. more than it does necessarily on the other folks that were involved. Yes, I, I would um, tend to agree. I think they could have done a better job vetting him. Yeah, it's they, they could have done a better job vetting. But it's worth keeping in mind that it was much more difficult to vet people in 2002 than it is in yeah. 2022. All right. So we'll, we'll go away. You'll hear the real version of <laughs> that horn thing that I sang before. And we'll be back with spoilers. All right, welcome back. We are going to spoil the movie, but before we do that, why don't we jump in? Uh, how did this movie hit you uh, a decade later? And how did you watch it? Did you watch it by yourself? Um, I watched it... So I, I turned it on and watched it while Lori was like, 
doing some other stuff. And so Lori was like popping in for parts of it, but didn't watch the whole thing with me. Just off and on. So otherwise, it was basically by myself. And did you like um, it? Yeah, so... Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't think I qu- enjoyed it quite as much as I did on the previous watches. And I think mm-hmm. it was affected by how much I knew the story had, like, was not accurate based on the previous times that I had watched it. Um, yeah. So that threw me off a little bit as I was watching it. It took me out of some of the scenes. But there were some of the scenes that that knowing that as I watched it, it kind of, I don't know, like... I got a sense of the person of Frank Abagnale Jr. in a little bit different way. And so I was able to approach this movie as more of a story rather than as a biographical story. And so once I started looking at more as a fictional piece that was trying to like get across certain things and more of like a Steven Spielberg movie rather than a biographical movie about Frank Abagnale Jr., then I enjoyed it a lot more. So I was going through this whole tension as I was watching the film. So I honestly don't know how I ended up on it because I'm wrestling with my opinions and thoughts and feelings about the film. Yeah, yeah. It, basically the same for me. I mean, I did have the extremely surreal experience of watching a story that I know maybe better than any other story (laughs) that exists but in a way where virtually none of the story be like virtually none of how it appeared on screen before me was familiar uh with the exception of a couple scenes which we'll talk about so that was extremely strange and then in particular the musical just ends like 25 minutes before the movie does and so so when you hit that like when in the musical when he leaves brenda like he leaves her and then he gets caught he has a song when he gets caught and then him and hanratty have a song after he gets caught and then the show's over like that's it wow and so yeah, there there definitely was that moment of wait, what's gonna happen for another twenty five minutes in this movie? Wow, and like I, that last twenty minutes really makes this movie kind of come together in a really different way because you see, like it's become so tragic that last twenty minutes. I don't know how the musical ends and how those songs go, but I can only imagine that it ends on like kind of an upbeat with the story and ends kind of triumphantly to a to a point. I don't know if that makes sense, but but that last 20 minutes of the film doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like like the mirage is stripped away and you're just seeing this person that's just miserable and, uh, you know, panicked and basically feeling worthless. And I don't know if that comes across in the musical. Um, I mean, you get that for a little bit of a scene between the pen ultimate number and the last number and then the last number the final number of the musical is essentially (laughs) musicalizing like the epigraphs at the end of the movie saying what what really happened even though now we know that it didn't happen (laughs) so the last song is like the last 30 seconds of the movie yeah yeah Yeah, exactly that's that's wild that's wild okay interesting and then so yeah there are a couple big things of knowing 
now about Frank Abagnale that make a lot of it pretty tough. So especially the Brenda stuff, because the I don't know how deep into this you got, but it looks like he didn't really pose as a pilot in real life. Um, Brenda was a the real life Brenda was a flight attendant who he stalked and ended up like she didn't want anything to do with him but her parents sort of got conned by him or sort of felt bad for him and so he ended up like living in their house and stealing a bunch of money from them while she was off puddle jumping and like doing her job and I haven't read the book yet like the book that explains like the investigative stuff that (laughs) the guy who uncovered all of this did so but my sense from reading around it and reading interviews is is that it was like pretty skeevy and she was like really unhappy with all of this and so that makes that makes the flight attendant stuff land a little more sourly or the stuff is of him as a fake pilot land on a more sour note and also all of the stuff with Brenda which is just a yeah, little rough. Yeah. It that makes sense. The other thing for me that is a little is like the way that it talks about the person that Carl Hanratty is based on. Right, which, yeah. That one is for me similarly because they didn't maintain any kind of friendship afterwards. Um Apparently, Frank Abagnale once showed up at a conference he was at and awkwardly was like, hey, do you remember me? And he's like, no. And that's the extent of their relationship afterwards. Uh, And he vehemently did not want to be involved with the movie and asked for his name not to be used. And that's why the name of Hanratty is used instead. It makes a lot of what makes the movie work just not work at all. Right. And there is an assumption that, like, if they're going to put something up in words at the end of the movie, that, like, it's true. (laughs) And in this case, it's just not. Like, they just... And it's something, like, I think they probably should have known, too, because there wasn't even really one Hanratty. Like, the the Hanratty is a composite of, I think, like, three different agents. And there's one who is stolen from more than others but yeah I, th- I think it should have been known I don't I don't really know and again I'm not trying to pass judgment you know you make the assumptions that you make and like <laughs> I worked on the show twice as well and didn't question any of it so uh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I met him I like but I met Frank Abagnale Jr., you know? <laughs> like I'm not surprised. I mean, he was frequently on set um, and, have, like, involved with the film. And he was always like, oh, I don't want to get too involved. But then he was always chatting with the people. And they were, like, you see these behind-the-scenes things with Frank Abagnale Jr., and they were just taken in by him. Like, he just was incredibly charming. And so they all really liked him, and I think that's why they just believed his story. They're like, why did this guy lie? He's just incredibly charming. Why Why do that? Right. Well, and that, you know, I say I met him. I met him in passing, like, once. But so people on the production team for the musical had met him more times than that. 
And they cited that as like part of the reason why they believed him. It's like, it's obvious why he was able to do these things. He just has such a magnetic personality that it's easy to see why he would be able to con everybody. So yeah, the, the, the late life con really doing a ton of work. Well, then, that's that's for me what what is kind of weird about the movie is that I'm like, okay, yeah, he didn't do all this stuff, but man, he sure pulled off. Like, you could make another movie about him conning about making the movie, and uh, that yeah. one would, that would work even better. Yeah, and the the biggest disappointment is this moment that like was so awesome the first time I watched the movie, and really felt awesome like honestly every time i watched it in the theater too and that's that like they they're leading up to this like how did he con the how did he beat the bar exam how did he con the bar exam and then it's just like yeah i just studied (laughs) i studied for two (laughs) weeks and i think it the movie even says it in an epigraph that he did it in two weeks um Um, i can't remember for sure but yeah i mean that part is when you see it it's it's a really great moment. You're like, oh yeah, awesome. Okay, great. yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's a it's great weird. moment. And the guy who wrote the who did the investigative journalism, like, yeah, you just can't find any record of Frank Abagnale ever taking ever taking the bar exam, much less passing yeah. it. So, yeah. uh, I think part of it is as well this mythology that this this film is very involved in this mythology we built up around like people and their intelligence and their ability to just like kind of create something out of nothing and the way that that's basically false um and you know that's one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the way that this myth making around individual people when there's so many people involved with making movies and so there's this myth making around uh, individual people like frank abagnale jr but it's you know it's a mirage and there's lots of different people that are involved with all kinds of different things with that said, I think that if you look at this movie as just like a fictional piece of like a, a fictional con artist, that I think that it really holds up well. I think so too, yeah. And so I think that's what's weird for me is I think like my trajectory with this film, I expect to like it even more afterwards, but this particular viewing was very weird for me. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So the what is strange, and I do hope people go and check. I would not say that um, the art of deception, the book I mentioned earlier by Kevin Mitnick, is like a particularly easy read. But one of the stark differences between that and Catch Me If You Can is the amount of detail <laughs> that he goes into with all of his <laughs> cons. And so, if people are hankering for that sort of thing, I would. I mean, hopefully it doesn't come out that that's all a lie, but I did a little bit of digging into it before we started, and it looks like he legitimately, like, has and does the cybersecurity stuff that he says he does. So hopefully it's all true. But anyway, yeah. But also be prepared to have the the rug yanked out from underneath of you because, you know, it happens. So. Yeah, but the, those con stories are all, are all really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. So should we talk about our first scene here? Let's talk about the scenes. Okay, so this one's mine. This is the the first scene that I wanted to talk about. Is It's sort of this like crossing of the threshold scene where 
Frank Abagnale. It's his 16th birthday, and he, Frank Abagnale Jr., and he's in the kitchen making himself food, and his dad comes home, Frank Sr. comes home. This is immediately following Frank Sr. had just gotten turned down for a loan at the bank, but he comes home and he says, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you making yourself dinner? And he's like, well, I'm making pancakes. And he says, you're not making yourself pancakes for your 16th birthday. Did you think I forgot it was your birthday? And Frank sort of demurs a little bit. And Frank Sr. says, I wouldn't forget my, forget my son's birthday. And then he, he pulls out a, a checkbook and gives him the birthday present of, of the checkbook. And I think there are several things that I really like about this scene. Um, the first of which is I think there's a really interesting acting triumvirate of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Christopher Walken, and Tom Hanks in this movie. And Christopher Walken, I think, is just absolutely unbelievable from start to finish Leonardo DiCaprio we talked about it a bit at the beginning of the show like you get to see his his transition out of heartthrob into serious actor and well Tom Hanks actually I wasn't I did want to ask you um I meant to do it in the reaction section the I I wasn't really crazy about him in this movie a weird I really loved uh Tom Hanks in this movie I think oh it's, really uh, yeah I think it's a brilliant performance from Tom Hanks and one of the things that um I think is he just does this really good uh, I don't know how to describe it um one of the things he talks about beforehand is that he had he had taken this role because he was in- interested in performing the role of the antagonist because he had kind of been pigeonholed into playing heroes and like a certain Good type guy, of Tom role. Hanks. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, most beloved man in America, Tom Hanks. Um, mm-hmm. And so he really was excited to be able to play an antagonist. But at the same time, this was an antagonist that had like some heart and, you know, is uh, one of the heroes of the story. And so he... Uh, the other thing that was really fascinating about this is that since Leonardo DiCaprio was kind of like the driving force behind this film, Leonardo had uh, asked Tom Hanks to come in and he comes in and talks to him and he's like, are you sure this is going to be okay with you? I don't want to overshadow you. Like it's a, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And, yeah. um, uh, and Leo's just like, no, I'm like, this is my dream casting for you in this part. So I don't know. It was really good. And I thought he did a great job with it. It's one of my favorite uh, Tom Hanks roles. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason, it was just so hard for me to get my head around his accent. It, I'm, I'm sure he was like, I'm sure he had a dialect coach and the accent was all correct and probably pretty accurate to whatever, perceived version of the real life Hanratty they were doing but it just and I, this isn't normally an issue for me but it didn't feel natural coming from Tom Hanks like it wasn't the voice that I was expecting him to have and so it made the whole performance not really ring true to me and maybe that's just a me thing some of it I'm sure is like Norbert Butts on broad on Broadway didn't do any version of the accent and so I like probably heard him do a lot of these same lines like thousands of times and so it probably just was too hard for me to get my ear 
<laughs> to wrench it back out out of that world. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It didn't didn't quite work for me. And I I going in, I thought it was going to be like a very comfy. Oh, I get to live with uh with Tom Hanks for a couple hours <laughs> here, and it just never was that. It's very different from what he normally performs. And then, like, if he'd just been doing his normal Tom Hanks accent, then the difference between the accent on stage and the accent on film probably wouldn't have bothered you at all because you'd just be like, oh, that's Tom Hanks. Yeah, but then yeah exactly. The, the jarring difference of coming from the stage accent to, like, Tom Hanks doing an accent. And it's like a mix of, like, a Chicago... Boston, Chicago, Boston, yeah, 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 and it's it's really weird. I mean, I, I don't know. It's a there's a bunch of things that he does that I've heard people say. So it's not like they're he is just made up stuff, but it is a strange accent that he's doing with it. I just love the um, the like you said the interplay between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, and also with Christopher Walken, all of this dynamic of the three characters. And the different archetypes of fatherhood that were kind of seen presented in this transition that Leo is going through between his biological father and kind of taking on the father figure of of Carl Hanratty. And I think that Tom Hanks is such a good person to play that role. Right. Yeah. And that was one of the I guess I got us a little off topic, but that was the one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this scene is the the interplay between Leonardo DiCaprio and Christopher Walken. I think it's so good here. And Christopher Walken, I think really is like, for me is the standout performance of this movie. Like, I just think he is, it feels like a performance that should be over the top. It should be scenery chewing. It should be not believable, but for some reason, like just that is who this version of Frank Abagnale senior is. He's a very, insincere person who is able to convince other people that he is sincere and so every aspect of that completely works for me in his performance i agree i think christopher walken is phenomenal and he um i believe was nominated for a uh, best supporting actor did he win for this one Um, i don't think he won but yes he was nominated and i don't believe either tom hanks or or mr dicaprio were so he, he got the um, yeah lone, I don't think so the lone nom here, but yeah his performance is so good and this this is one of the things that there's a whole bit on the behind the scenes with Christopher Walken, uh, and particularly the scene that they have one of the earlier scenes where he's telling the story of how he met his wife. And he goes through and he does it in a lot of different versions and some are like more arrogant and some are more goofy. And then he does this one where he like breaks up and cries in it. And that's the scene that's in the in the movie. And the performance just like made everybody else cry, like <laughs> all the people working on the set because they were like, that's amazing. And then Christopher walking afterwards is like, I don't know how I felt about that one. I don't know if it was good. Uh, can we do a few more? And uh, Spielberg just has to say, no you got it in that take that's the take like it's so good we don't need to do it again uh because he just tried so many different things yeah like it was that was marvelous acting you're good you don't need to do anything else so i did what yeah yeah, i I did wonder about that because there is a piece of choreography and who knows if it's actually choreography or something that was actually that was just improv maybe it only happened once in this scene where 
I think it's after he gives him the checkbook and Frank Abagnale forgets about the pancakes and sits sits down at the table and Christopher Walken passes behind him and starts flipping the pancakes while Frank, Frank Abagnale Jr. is so engrossed in the checkbook. And it was just such a great little natural moment. You know, I'm just always a fan of when actors or I guess characters or whoever are doing other things in a scene. It's one of those things that just makes it feel a little more real to me, especially if it has no bearing on what they're talking about. Like we do that in life all the time. There's so many times where like Mara and I are talking while I'm cooking or I'm talking to her while she's knitting or she's having a conversation where I'm trying to find where I put the damn car keys, you know? Like that's just something that happens a lot and it struck me as very true uh, yes and also hear, but tay is growling in the background so oh, wonderful i guess yeah. she likes so... it as well <laughs> uh yeah as someone that's you know easily forgets what i'm doing in the middle of doing it i definitely identify with leonardo dicaprio's character here and just you know forgetting about the pancakes and getting focused on the new dazzling thing that's in front of him yeah um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about for this scene, and this is something that was added from the book, or sorry, was not in the book, so it was added for the movie, and that is essentially this creation of the father-son relationship. The As purported by the real Frank Abagnale Jr., like their relationship was not as in-depth as it is in the movie i think they he, he says like he didn't really see his dad after after this moment so this was entirely a spielberg creation and it's something that uh shaman and whitman and had cited when we, on the broadway show as like part of and terence mcnally as well the book writer as something that they thought made the show musicalizable was this relationship this father-son relationship yeah and for me it's it's what puts the film kind of like on a different tier yeah for one because they perform so well off of each other uh but beyond just that i think that the arc that these two characters go through and the way that they are foils for each other really enhances the entire course of the film and it makes it makes the film it's like the engine at the heart of the film. It makes everything else work. And it also is just part of why I love this film, despite the um, untruthfulness of, of <laughs> the, lack the actual... The veracity, yeah. Yeah, the lack of veracity. Part of what makes me love this film is that, that I think that Spielberg captures some really true things in the relationship between the father and the son here. Even though it might not be true in real life, like just because it's not real doesn't mean that it's not true and i think that he captures a lot of those dynamics and a lot of those reflect kind of some of the difficulties and the the kind of tensions that were in the relationship of steven spielberg with his own father which you know was a, a complicated relationship and um if folks want to see like a lot more of that kind of relationship and see so many clear parallels to to what's going on in this film. Uh, I highly recommend checking out The Fablemans, which digs into this quite a bit. Yeah, uh, it's so funny. Something I wrote in my notes for this scene is 
And I don't know why I wrote this down, uh, but I wrote that this movie is the inverse of Big Fish. Uh, Big Fish is a Tim Burton movie that's essentially about a kid, or I guess an adult who used to be a kid, all adults used to be kids, who has always sort of disdained his lying or good-for-nothing father for the tall tales that he told and like why can't he be serious and why can't he tell me the truth and then it sort of turns out like the stories are true and so it is lionizing or redeeming this idea of fathers who like tell their sons tall tales in a way that I'm, I'm not particularly fond of whereas this movie does like the exact opposite it takes a son who idolizes his father and thinks that he's the greatest man in the world and wants to take after him and then shows the story of his continued disillusionment with his father until he eventually replaces his real father figure with uh, Carl Hanratty, the father figure who <laughs> who is going to, quote-unquote, be there for him. Yeah. And... Ordinarily, I would just think, like, this was a funny thing that I wrote in my notes, and I wouldn't mention it on the podcast, except because I do think it is a rather flimsy connection that I just happened to make in my brain. But I was really surprised to see when researching this movie that Spielberg was actually supposed to do Big Fish. He was originally attached to Big Fish and then ended up leaving that project to work on this very movie. And... Who knows? Maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe he didn't see the same things in Big Fish that I saw. Or maybe, like, it was a subconscious decision that he wanted to do a movie that line, aligned a little more closely with some of the stuff that he was trying to work out. I don't I don't really know. The, the yeah, relationship know. that he was trying to repair. And just looking through the notes on that one, apparently there were a lot of script changes that uh, Steven Spielberg was looking at the kind of were changing kind of the core of big fish and then once he left they changed those things back so oh, so yeah so it makes me really uh, curious about you know obviously that's the kind of thing we don't know we'd have to sit down and talk with steven spielberg and ask him and this would be a great like in-depth question if we ever get him on the show um i'm sure so. we will. yeah <laughs> yeah eventually eventually so but yeah, it's a that's a really fascinating, uh, a really fascinating poll. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that that gets introduced in this scene is there's this motif that the dad introduces where he talks about the reason why he says to him, "Why do the Yankees always win?" <laughs> um, and then you know he says, "Oh, because they have Mickey Mantle." And he says, "No, it's because they're always looking at the the pinstripes." So I was really curious about what your thoughts were on uh, on that <laughs> quote and just like the Yankees in general in this film. Oh yes, it will. I had this for um, for cleanup, but we can do it now. It will not surprise you to know that I did uh, <laughs> a little bit of a deep dive here into into Mickey Mantle and the Yankees and the Yankees in this time period because so. At this point, we're in, I believe we're in 1963. Mm-hmm. And then we're in, 19, right. we're in 1970 when Frank gets caught. But there's another moment where 
Frank says this to Hanratty, and he says, because he's like, why do the Yankees always win? And uh, they have Mickey Mantle. Right, but Hanratty's correcting him. He's like, no, this line your dad fed you is bullshit. Like, it's not because of the pinstripes. It's because they have Mickey Mantle. And so I was like, yeah, I see how that was probably true in 1963, but there is no way this was true through to whenever we were in time at that point, which I think was 1968. So uh, obviously, like, as I'm sure you know, 1961 was the year that Mickey Mantle hit 60 home runs. It's the year that... Oh, sure. Everybody uh, knows that. Uh, the year that... Or did he hit 60? He might have topped out at like 58 or something. But it's the year that Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's record of ni- of 60 home runs and hit 61 home runs. That year, obviously, Mickey as Mantle... I, as I definitely knew. Uh, right. Everyone knows that Roger Maris hit 61 in 1961. <laughs> if you didn't know that, you just wouldn't be on a podcast with me. Um, Mickey Mantle was unbelievable that year, and he was unbelievable in the years leading up to that up to that season. So uh, I believe not the season before, but the two seasons before that, he was worth uh, 11 wins above replacement. This is a massive number, as you're going to see going through his career here. In 1961, he was worth 10.4 wins above replacement. And then in 1962, he was worth six wins above replacement. And so in those two seasons, 61 and 62, the Yankees did win the World Series. And then in 63 and 64, they made it to the World Series and lost. So through 61 to 64, I think it is probably pretty accurate that this was the perception of people that the Yankees always win, even though they lost the World Series in uh, 63 and 64, and that Mickey Mantle was among their best players. Even though he wasn't their best player in 1963, he was only seventh in wins above replacement that year. Um, for he was their best player in 1961 and 62. But people aren't really very good at knowing when a player is good or not, so they probably still thought he was good in 1963, even if he was not quite as good. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, however, after that, so Mickey Mantle only plays four more years, uh, 65 through 68. All of those years, the Yankees are pretty bad. Some of them, they have losing records and... Uh, many like i think the highest they finish in that period of time is fifth so i don't think people would be thinking that the yankees always win in that time period i'm pretty sure that's false however mickey mantle continued to be pretty good over that time in 65 he was their seventh best player by wins above replacement and then he was their third best player second best player and fourth best player after that and even in those years where he was not very good he was still voted an all-star that year. So I think even though he was in a pretty swift decline in his career and he was dealing with a lot of health issues, like it was just really hard for him to swing the bat at that time. I think it probably was true that people still viewed him as extremely good. I I mean, in 1967, he was still their second best player. It's just they weren't very good. So being their second best player was a little less impressive. Uh, So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, like, people probably did view Mickey Mantle as extremely good until the end of his career, even though when Carl Hanratty said that in the movie, the Yankees were no longer good, so. Yeah, yeah, Uh, that all checks out. I think, as well, there's kind of like this, 
it's weird this this comment i i get why his dad says it right uh the, they're always looking at the pinstripes and like the reputation that goes in here and there's a lot that makes you think like no that's like Carl Hanratty's right about this, but there also is this thing that you see in sports with this kind of reputation that teams build up over time and their ability to attract talent in ways that they wouldn't be able to without that kind of reputation and the money that they're able to leverage in order to bring athletes in. And I think that's part of what his dad is getting at is that sometimes an organization like this or like what, they have this mythology that makes them, I don't know, that makes them different. And because people respect the mythology, they are able to use it and leverage it in in turning it into real results. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it does. And I would say there was even a relatively widespread belief until maybe 20 years ago. And I would say it is maybe still a belief held by some people that actually I would say it was probably true through like 2009 when the Yankees won their last World Series and they haven't won since then that like just being a Yankee imbued you with magical powers and I know it sounds like <laughs> insane yeah. for me to say it like I that get but what like, you're saying yes people I understand. legitimately believed that like Yankees were just more clutch than other people yeah. and that other teams would crumble under the pressure when facing the Yankees even though like now we've looked at this and we can't really find any statistical evidence to this it's just like confirmation bias is too strong <laughs> like I, I you... get it I get it and where I see this is mainly like in soccer with teams like Barcelona or Manchester United or Real Madrid things like this but there is this weird thing where a lot of these teams were able – so quick backstory. There was a huge financial crisis in the um, the Spanish soccer teams and the, basically like the bottom fell out of so many of these teams, in particular Barcelona. And it came to find out that for several years they were essentially trading on their name uh, when they didn't have the finances to be able to do that. So they ended up having – hundreds of millions of dollars in the red that they were just trading on their reputation in order to keep it that way until it all collapsed underneath of them. So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking of when this idea of like, they're looking at the pinstripes. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I think I cut you off a little bit as you were talking more about the Yankees there though. Oh, that's fine. I don't think people need to listen to more of my Yankees podcast as we. <laughs> uh, I can't. Maybe it was last episode that we covered that it's not. It can't be my baseball podcast. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so there is one other thing that I wanted to add on here, just a small thing. The the pinstripes thing made me think of the wardrobe changes. So in this film, this is one of the most wardrobe changes of any movie ever made. Um, oh. It has been yes. So it has. They have 100 wardrobe changes for Frank Abagnale Jr. in this film. Um, Jeez. Yes, 100 wardrobe changes. Some of them are small. And so it's a little bit weird trying to track down what movie has the most wardrobe changes. Um, And I kind of went down a little rabbit hole to figure this out. And so you've essentially got three films that are in the running for this idea of like most wardrobe changes. This Mm. is one of them. 
Okay. okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But but what this are one, the years of the other two? Um, one of them was oh I didn't look up the other one. One of them's twenty twenty, and the other oh. one is uh, you might be able to guess the other one as well. Um, but the other one is nineteen ninety six. So, uh, you'll you'll recognize the film. Uh, you'll recognize the films as soon as I say what they they are. You're, it's it's going to become obvious to you. Uh, so the thing about Catch Me If You Can, it doesn't, it, it only holds up if you're counting like every wardrobe change, mm-hmm. uh, but if you're counting just small, like actual costume changes, then there's another, the film from 96 is the most. Um, but if you're and counting it's... actual wardrobe changes, this one comes in at number two with 100 and there's another one that has 101 that came out in 2020. It surpassed them by one costume change or my one only, wardrobe change. My only guess for 96 would be Mission Impossible. It and, is not Mission Impossible. Yeah, it seemed unlikely, but then I was like, "Ooh, maybe all those masks really, really." Up it is a count. film that is based is an adaptation of a musical. What? From ninety six. From ninety six. Hmm. I don't know. I can't think of any movie musicals that came out in ninety six. It's one of uh, it's one of the big ones, featuring. Uh, once I tell you who's in it, you'll know who it, know what it is. It is featuring the actress Madonna. Oh, Evita, of course. Evita, yeah, and of course, because once you think about it, Evita has right. so many costume changes, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Evita has eighty five costume changes, but those are like actual costume changes. So that's generally right. seen as the wow. most costume changes. Um, the film that has the most wardrobe changes that passed up uh, Catch Me If You Can is The Irishman. Right. Yeah, of yeah. course. Which yep. makes sense as well. Yeah. <laughs> get three and a half hours of movie in there. And yeah, exactly. So six <laughs> you're decades able to get, or whatever it is. Yeah. You're able to get one more costume change than this one, than Catch mm-hmm. Me If You Can. It's nice. crazy. So, yes, incredible amount of costume changes that they do in this film. Um. This is a song in the musical. It actually used to be, it was a different song in Seattle. It was 50 Checks in Seattle, uh, uh-huh. which you can hear on the album as a bonus song. And I kind of go back and forth between which one I like better. And then the one that's in the actual show is the pinstripes are all that they see, which definitely provides more of just like a punch. It, gotcha. It's more of a driving song. So I understand like why... It's the second song in the show, so <laughs> you, you don't want to put people to sleep. And 50 Checks is more of like a slow, jazzy lounge number. Nice. Uh, cool. Let's move on to the next scene. we gotta got to pick up the pace here. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a 10-hour episode. Um, um, I'm going to cut down the, the uh, just logistical. I'm going to cut down the one where they meet in the thing because I said a lot of the stuff I was going to say. Okay, cool. The one with his dad. Uh, the next scene I wanted to talk about is Hanratty showing up at Frank's apartment. Yes. And so this is, yeah, this is the scene where he, Hanratty goes to the hotel and he's asking about the checks and then turns out that Frank Abagnale Jr. is still there. And so <laughs> you get to see uh, Hanratty charge up the, charge up the steps, gun in hand, and break into the room and... Essentially, you get to see Frank con uh, Hanratty. Yeah. And escape by making him think that he is 
uh, special agent Barry Allen, who Hanratty does not recognize as the Flash. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, little little note here. He also goes by the name Doctor Connors later on, so which is also great. Oh yes, yes. Oh, I so, never, I never recognized. You that. didn't make yeah. that connection. So Barry no, Allen yeah. is the Flash, and then he goes by Doctor Connors, Connors when he's the Doctor. Yeah. yeah. Crossover with uh, Spider Man from two thousand two. That's right. From the same year, and so yeah, there's a lot of things I love about this scene. In particular, because there actually are not a lot of times in the movie where you actually get to see him perpetrating the con. You get to see you get to see him sort of luck his way into fly. I, I'd say the other two main places you get to see it, both him lucking into being a pilot for the first time and when he is being a doctor in the emergency room. And both of those times are kind of played for laughs. Like, it's it's viewed as like, oh, here's the lucky accident that let him get through this situation. But this is, so this is kind of really the only time where you see him get to use, like, his charm and his brains to get out of a situation. And it really just makes the electricity of the scene absolutely fly and it was one of those things like you could in on broadway in the show you could feel it in this scene too like and a musical is different because everything is just like zooming along and there's songs and it's like so hard to keep up with the plot and then as soon as you hit this scene it's just like and everyone in the audience and you know the show didn't receive great reviews like it didn't run for very long and you could feel it in the audience sometimes you could feel people like start to lose lose where it was and then they'd get back into it for for the music because the music is legitimately great but this scene too everyone was always laser focused and everyone was hanging on every word and one of the things you miss from the movie is there are like legitimate laugh lines in in this scene that brought down the house every night and so it was pretty surreal for me to watch it and then just not hear those laughs it's like wait where's the audience (laughs) this is (laughs) this is a laugh line so yeah i i love this scene and it was the other thing that i was surprised by is they do this scene almost verbatim in the musical. It's one of the only scenes that's lifted verbatim. And I can see why. The dialogue is great. The like the whole thing just works. And yeah, it's it's great. I I don't know. Do, do you find this scene as affecting as I do? Yeah, I mean this scene is the best scene in the movie. It's so yeah. good. Okay, it's, cool. It's incredible. This it, it's works so well. And the performances between the two of them are just mm-hmm. pitch perfect. Like it, the, you get such a clear sense of of Leonardo DiCaprio not only like acting confident but projecting confidence that he doesn't actually have. But the that Carl Hanratty is uh, or that Tom Hanks is buying into it uh, because of like Tom Hanks's or Carl Hanratty's insecurity that he has going in. And so that dynamic and that leverage is so good. And it's it's hard to remember that these are both like just professional actors putting in that performance because the emotional quality of it is so 
accurate to what that would be like. It's also the camera work is incredible. The way that they yeah. stage all this and set it all up. And there's like really delicate and tricky choreography with the revealing of each of the moments and how Leonardo DiCaprio kind of uses the room to kind of move around and to sell what he's doing. And also kind of position Hanratty over closer to the window so that he can get away and escape and, and, have like that clear opportunity for him to do it and the way the camera moves around to facilitate that is just really really good work it's it's a great scene it's it's one of it's the best scene in the movie and it's one of the one of the great scenes like ever it's really that just just that great yeah it it hums it is it is electric one of those laugh lines i had to remember them uh, is when when uh i almost said aaron when frank abagnale Tell, asks Han Ratty to show him some identification. Yeah. <laughs> Never can be too careful. And I'm telling you, it just brought down the house. I believe night. it. It's a great line. And, yep. And the, both line. of them delivery is perfect. The thing you, the other thing you gain in the movie, or I guess the thing you lose on stage is you get a lot of those really specific camera shots where yes. Leonardo DiCaprio, Frank Abagnale is able to show like, let the facade drop so you get to see him being nervous because the camera he we see that his back is to Hanratty and you can't really mm-hmm. do that on stage so that was a nice yes. additional layer that i appreciated the other thing that i really loved with this one that you just would never be able to do on stage is the inserts the insert shots that they do of the labels all the labels that he takes off of everything and it's such a great little yeah. character building detail because they never comment on it Right, he never says anything about it, but you see him doing it, and they plant that seed, and then they show like Hanratty seeing and acknowledging those things and picking up on those details, and then it goes through the rest of the movie where at the wedding he picks up the label and notices it, and he's able to follow those clues, and it's such a great story detail that's done so subtly, and it's great filmmaking. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, he he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can go on to the next scene. I guess. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so the next scene you have this, uh, you have this scene where um, I forget which scene we're on. Sorry. Oh, so the, the, I think the next one. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think the next one is where he asks his dad to tell him to stop. Where he meets him in the okay. restaurant. So in in the next scene, what happens is you have this moment where, uh, or these moments throughout the film where Frank Abagnale Jr. goes to meet with Frank Abagnale Sr. So Leonardo DiCaprio is going and meeting with Christopher Walken and trying to talk to him and, like, tell him about what's going on with his life, trying to connect with him and trying to rebuild that fantasy that he has with his dad. And there's this particular scene where they meet up and they they go to this bar uh, and he sits down and he talks to him and the facade gets entirely destroyed because Christopher Walken tells him, like, oh, uh, your mother, she's marrying somebody else else and I took a job working for the government and all of these different things that gradually destroys the the facade but but then you see Leonardo DiCaprio pleading with him like just tell me not to do it anymore I can be done with this it's uh, I don't want to live in this but his dad feeds him into it and pushes him farther into the hole um and it's for me it's the 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 no way like the the last moment 
where Christopher Walken's character can redeem himself at all, and he completely goes past the point of no return and sends his son into this incredibly dark and twisted spiral of crime that he goes on that essentially is just like coping with the destruction of his personality and the destruction of the the fantasy of his father that, that he just completely destroys in this moment. Yeah, well, and it's so clear in this moment that what Frank Abagnale Jr., Frank Jr. is looking for affirmment from his dad. He's so proud of all the things that he's done. And he's like, yeah, I get to eat here. I get to take you out for dinner. I like, I have all these amazing things. And he wants his dad to say, wow, you did it. You are beating the man. And he gets like a little moment of it. But then at the at what is supposed to be the coup de grace, where he hands him keys to a car, his dad spits in his face and says, No, I you're my son. Like, I don't take things from you. And it is everything that Frank Jr. has been trying to build. Yeah, you're exactly right. At that point, it just comes crashing down because what was it all for if if yeah. his dad wasn't the person that he thought that he was? And this is where, yeah, this is where I think you see him switch from having to be idolizing his dad to opening that window to letting Hanratty in. Yes, and the... And- it's that transition point, and he has the conversation with Hanratty not too long after this. So they're, it's, they're obviously doing this transition and this handoff and trying to, uh, right at the moment that they're destroying the confidence in his dad, they're building up the confidence with Hanratty. But in particular, there's this moment right at the end of this scene where his dad is like, where are you going now, Frank? Where are you? You know, all of that kind of stuff and says it in such a, a mocking way as he's running away. And that's the last thing that he has to say to his dad. And I don't know, the, the destruction of the mythology of his father figure in this moment, I think is an incredibly beautiful and touching, but tragic scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's- yeah, That's all I've got. That's all I've got to say about that scene though. Yeah, uh, the last one we wanted to talk about was some some the phone call, one of the phone calls that he has with Hanratty. So what what's that one? Yeah, so there's multiple phone phone calls that happen, and I kind of wanted to wrap them up into into different things. So uh, every Christmas Eve, essentially, um, uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. Car- calls Carl Hanratty. Because he has this moment where he calls him, it's on Christmas, Carl Henry Henratty is in the office working, you know, Tom Hanks, and he's trying to catch uh, catch Frank, and he gets the call, and he, you know, he's trying to milk him for clues and all of these things, but he discovers at that moment that Frank is entirely alone, but what's, what I find remarkable about this is that he knows this because he's also alone, right, he's, his family isn't with him, and his family really doesn't want much to do with him at this point, so he's just working in the office. Uh, and Frank is all by himself because he's kind of isolated himself from humanity by doing all of these cons. And the one time where they're able to connect with as a human being is with each other over a phone call. And they're the the they are the you know the antagonists to each other. They're supposed to be enemies, but they form this really beautiful friendship over over these phone calls as Carl Hanratty is trying to milk him for information. One of the things that I love about this is that each time Frank just tells him uh, what's actually going on and gives him like the clues uh, yeah, that he can nice come and moments. catch him. 
And but he doesn't believe it. He's like, yeah, sure. You'd want me to send a bunch of agents out on Christmas Eve to Las Vegas and look like a fool. But no, that's really where he's at, at all these kinds of different things. And it really builds up their relationship over the course of the film. And the last uh, conversation that they have is right after this this part with his dad, where uh, where he calls him again, tells him, you know, he wants to come in. He wants to be done. He doesn't want to be doing this anymore. And he's like, you, you I can't do that. You, you stole this money. What did you think was going to happen? that can't happen he's like i know i just you know i kind of i just kind of hoped and i just thought i'd ask i just thought i'd ask yeah what's three million dollars between friends you know exactly I, i think they're beautiful moments of humanity but you see also this tension of you know there's this this insurmountable problem of the of the massive crimes that that he's committed yeah you you it brings them together and both of them are unable to have the familial life that they want because of the career paths that they have chosen. And one of those is a life of crime. And one of those is trying to catch people who have lived lives of crime, but both have given them the same conundrum and they are ultimately able to bond over those things. Yes. Bond yeah. over that that lack. The this is the other thing that I I feel like is just the beating heart, the engine of the movie is is that relationship between them and that that filling in the gap because because Henry becomes the father figure to him. He and he really connects with him, and you know he cares about him. It's that moment at the end of the the movie where where Frank Abagnale Jr is being dragged away in the car and Hanratty's there pounding on the thing saying, I'm going to get you out of here, Frank. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be okay in a way that he just cares about him in, in, in this relationship they've built up. I don't know. I, I love that scene and I love that relationship they build. Yeah. And I had forgotten. I mean, I didn't know it's not in the musical that the, that he shows up at his mom's Christmas one last time and that that is the the final death for old for old frank jr that the the last vestige of his previous home life is completely dead because his mom is celebrating christmas with another family with another dad and another another kid who's replaced him yeah that's just such a stab in the you know is it a great moment yeah yeah definitely and missed it. <laughs> I just didn't know it. Didn't know it happened. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's the, that's what really works for me in this film is the engine that makes it all go is this relationship between them and the, you know, the way that you can find your family, that this idea of found family and the way that you connect with people and that you can have these kinds of relationships build over time rather than just being connected to somebody because they're your dad and they're your blood and because you have this mythological story about them. I, I love the transfer over of uh, of the relationships in this movie. And that that's all that I really got to say about it. All right, let's go ahead and move into cleanup here. I've, yeah, I've managed to hit almost everything. Uh, we don't have to go through my, all the Yankee stats I pulled because we already have those. I guess I just have two things, so. I have two um, things as well. Okay, so I'll go first. The first is is that there's a song that's repeated twice in this film, uh, Embraceable You. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing this is a song that you're familiar with. Oh, yeah, for right? sure. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a standard. 
Yeah, it's a standard. So I just wanted to shout this one out. I'm guessing most people know this song, but maybe not everyone knows who wrote it. It's a George and Ira Gershwin song. Mm -hmm. comes from their songbook. I think a lot of people know... I think it's a Judy Garland version, or yes. and there's also a Billie Holiday version that are the most famous, but I think it's I'm really important. I'm familiar with both of them, yes. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember the uh, the songwriters who wrote them. So we've, we've been able to catch an Irving Berlin tune. We caught an Irving Berlin tune always for Pride of the Yankees, and then we get Embraceable You here. It was originally written in 1928 for... I think a movie that ended up not happening, but then showed up in on Broadway in Girl Crazy in 1930, which then now most people know as Crazy for You from 1992, which won Best Musical. Nice. Very good. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. So, yeah. so one of the things that I saw uh, when I was looking on the, um, the behind the scenes stuff here is they were talking about the influences on this film. So yeah. they talked specifically that some of the things that they referenced that they used as like reference shots and materials is they wanted to evoke the feel of the picaresque, uh, like, you know, stories dealing with thieves and criminals and things like that from the 60s and the 70s that were influenced by the French New Wave. And they called out three films in particular. They mentioned Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The uh-huh. Sting, and can you guess what the third one was? Yes, I think I can. I'm going to guess it was Bonnie and Clyde. It's Bonnie and Clyde. Probably, I actually probably would have been able to come up with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as well. Yeah. Um, the Sting I would not have gotten. Yeah, The Sting is a great film. But yeah, so uh, so this film directly inspired by uh, the film that we watched last week. So uh, oh. a nice little stream of crossover there. I, I was excited to hear. Yeah, thrilling. Get yeah. Get a little extra synergy. Yeah. So what's your next thing that you had? Uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, how did... Th- <laughs> I was pretty surprised when the direct James Bond reference happened in this movie. <laughs> okay, that was my other thing, too. So, oh, yeah. How, how did you feel about it? Um, I, I, I don't know. I thought it was great. <laughs> so, uh, I thought it was really interesting, especially that they brought in the Aston Martin and they brought mm-hmm. in the suit from... Uh, from, you know, Sean Connery's suit. And I don't know. I think I think it's fun. And they were going for, like, a James Bond kind of feel, feel on this film. So I thought it was good. Yeah, I think so, too. What I don't like in retrospect, though, is that it's the only time in the movie it happens. It <laughs> yeah. feels like a little bit of a tone departure from the rest of the movie. It does And there is bit. another moment that is a tone departure in the movie, although it's a different one trying to remember exactly what it is i think it's after brenda leaves or after he leaves brenda and there's that like like it's basically from harry potter tracking shot of the dollar bill flying away oh yeah 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 i mean it's a really good shot but it's a fantasy movie all of a sudden yeah (laughs) it's a really really good shot but yeah it does feel very i don't know like it feels very different that one's weird yeah it's almost like yeah, it's almost like there was a point in time where this was a couple different movies and then those couple sequences or shots got, got left in. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, I think the part of it might be that just, you know, Steven Spielberg really, really wanted to put homages to other movies in. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that dollar bill thing is like, you know, a reference to some other film. In some maybe, way. yeah. And yeah. then maybe there's a third one that's just less overt that I didn't notice. And then he hits the rule of three and... 
I'm the dummy instead of him. Who knows? I don't know. So that's it? You don't have that's any That's it? That's all I got. That was the, that was the last James one. Bond? Yep, I have James all Bond right. crossover written down here. Uh, well, then let's go ahead and wrap this puppy up. We... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we love hearing from you. Uh, you... Still currently can reach me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. Um, you can also reach me on well, on Hive at the same place if Hive ends up being a thing. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, same thing on Instagram. I, what about you, Maddie? Where Where are you? Yeah, so you can, you know, if you want to send me a message, I'm still uh, looking at my Twitter messages and things like that. I'm not really posting, but I'll respond to DMs and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I'm also over, I guess, on Hive as long as that uh, that social media thing is a thing. Um, and you can hit me up on Instagram, I guess, too. But probably the easiest way to make sure to get a hold of us is send us an email at uh, podcaststreamit at gmail.com. Yep, <laughs> there, there's no imminent plans of Gmail disappearing, so pre- presumably you'll be able to find us there for, for a good long while. Uh, as always, we do want to thank David Stewart, a.k.a. Esturiel, our beta listener, and has been helping us out with editing the podcast, making us just sound a little bit or a lot a bit better. So thanks, David. And... I guess the only other thing is next week we're going to be watching uh, Roma from 2018. It'll be my first time, and Matt, you've seen it before. Yes. But we only get to once, get to get to cross off another Oscar winner, so nice. that'll be Very good. that'll be nice. Yeah. Very exciting. All right. So we will talk to you next week then. Bye. Bye.